Thanks, Kyle. Good morning. My name is Paul Hamm. I'm the Church Start resident here at Urban Village Church. And if you don't know, uh, today is my last Sunday, so uh, I will be going to Lansing, Michigan, where I'll be pastoring a, a United Methodist Church there. And so I'm excited to move back. Uh, but I want to thank all of you for uh, being my church community for this past year. It really flew by really quickly. Uh, but uh, today we are in a sermon series called House Party, Extending God's Invitation to All, and we're talking about evangelism. And if you're like me, the word evangelism, it carries a little bit of baggage because a lot of times when people talk about evangelism, it's paired with this turn or burn type of theology. You either believe what I believe in and you cross this proverbial line and you join my camp or you are going to burn eternally um, in that other bad place. And so I think that damaged a lot of people who heard that type of evangelistic message. I think it also hurt the people who are forced or guilted into evangelizing using that method as well. But today we're going to talk about evangelism in a slightly different way and uh, because I truly believe that evangelism is really, really, really important. But first, would you join me in a word of prayer? Good and gracious God, we give you thanks this morning and as we come before you, as we sit in this place with our brothers and sisters, may we open our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, our eyes and our ears to the working of your presence. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. And we ask all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start by sharing a story. Uh, my dad, he's a retired United Methodist pastor. And United Methodist pastors, they are not, uh, they don't apply for jobs. They are appointed to churches. And so my dad was appointed to this church, um, and we were going to move outside of New York City where I grew up. I grew up in Queens. We were moving to a neighborhood, a very, very affluent neighborhood in Long Island, New York. It's called Great Neck. And Great Neck's sort of claim to fame is that the famous American author F. Scott Fitzgerald lived there. Of course, he wrote The Great Gatsby. And The Great Gatsby is about people with opulent wealth, you know, old money versus new money. And Great Neck represented where Gatsby lived. And true to the novel, uh, it was a super, super, super rich neighborhood. If you went to the high school, the students' parking lot had much nicer cars than the teachers' parking lot. <laughs> so we lived there uh, when I was in sixth grade, and I felt like I stuck out like a sore thumb. Everyone, was, everyone in the neighborhood was white. Everyone was rich. Everyone wore nice clothes, drove nice cars. Uh, the neighborhood was about 95% Jewish. And someone once even came up to me and asked me, Paul, what temple do you go to? To which I responded, how many Korean Jews do you know? <laughs> I'm not saying that it's impossible because in certain forms of Judaism, you can convert, right? Uh, but to me, I was like, well, uh, I'm not Jewish. But that was just the assumption. So I just did not fit in many ways. And I was really, really self-conscious of the fact that I was different than everybody else. I was this poor Asian kid from Queens. 
Well, one day after school, this kid, Darren, and I didn't even know Darren. I just knew who he was. Him and three of his friends come up to me after school. They surround me. They push me against the locker. And Darren, I think he was even a little bit shorter than me, but he's just a mean kid. He gets right up into my face, and he says some uh, racial, uh, racist slurs against Asian people. And then he sticks his finger in my face and says, you don't belong here. And if something like that happened to me now, I think my initial response would be anger and maybe I'd clock this guy in the face. But when I was in sixth grade, my immediate response was not anger. It was tremendous, tremendous sadness. Because I had already felt like I didn't belong in that neighborhood. I had already felt like everyone was somehow better than me. And what Darren was doing was just confirming the thoughts that I was feeling inside. That's, that's, uh, that's just one piece of my story. But I think each and every single person here in this room can identify with the situation where you were in a place, uh, whether it's a physical place or a place in your life, where you looked around and you felt like you were different. Maybe, you're, maybe you were a woman in a room full of all men and the guys are just broing out and, and they're oblivious to the fact that, uh, that there's a woman in the room and you feel like your voice is not heard. Maybe you're a person of color, and you're in a room, and it's painfully obvious that you are the only person of color, even though people say, oh, you know, I didn't know you're black. I just see you as a person, right? You still know that you're the person of color in the room. Maybe you are the only, seemingly the only queer person in the room, because you never really know, right? But uh, everyone is sort of talking from their heteronorms, and you are very self-conscious of the fact that uh, you are not like them. Maybe you look around the room and everyone just seems to have more education than you because they're so smart and they're using these $5 words and, and uh, you feel like you're so undereducated around them. Maybe everyone is taller and more fit and better looking and more beautiful, and their clothes is just a little bit nicer than yours, and their clothes seems to fit their bodies and hang a little bit better than the clothes that you're wearing. And when you find yourself in those places, there's this inherent, subconscious, unspoken message that they are somehow better than me. Even though we want to say, oh, no, no, I'm just different. But in our society where there are norms, Different is often equated with less than. We feel devalued, marginalized, oppressed. And those are difficult places to be in. And when we find ourselves in those places, there is a psychological, emotional, spiritual wound that is done, that is done to us. And it doesn't go away overnight just because we recognize that. It stays with us, and that wound, it seeps out into all kinds of different destructive and painful ways in our lives. And so I think each and every one of us has experienced that in one form or another. Some of us have experienced that in double and triple and you know, quadruple forms of marginalization, right? Well, today, Jesus, he, uh, there's a story in our scripture reading 
Jesus, he's hanging out with these sinners, these tax collectors, these prostitutes, these drunks, these amoral people, all the people that the religious leaders say, you are on the outside of society. It says that Jesus not only spends time with them, but that Jesus welcomes them. Maybe another way that you can say it is that Jesus is drawn to people who are on the outskirt, on the fringe. And Jesus gets a lot of flack for it. And so Jesus tells two parables in response to the criticism of the religious leaders. He says, there is a man. He has 100 sheep, and one of them is lost. So he will leave the 99 in an open field, which is dangerous, because when the shepherd leaves, the sheep can be eaten or stolen, or uh, you could lose even more sheep. But he will go, and he will search high and low until he finds that one sheep, and will rejoice when he brings it back. And then there's a woman who had 10 silver coins, but somehow loses one of the silver coins. And she searches high and low. She looks into every nook and cranny into her house until she finds that one coin. When she finds the one coin, she's so happy. She calls her friends and says, let's celebrate. And somehow I think that the cost of celebrating and inviting your friends and having a party probably costs more than one coin. So it doesn't really make sense. And Jesus says, this is the kingdom of God. This is the heart of God. Now, traditionally, these parables have been interpreted to mean that, you know, those sinners, those people who are lost, those people who don't go to church, oh, those poor lost sheep, those sinners. That's why we as Christians need to go and convert them and bring them to church. And we're guilted, we're prodded to say that if you're a Christian, then you need to go bring those lost sheep back. That's the traditional interpretation of this passage. But as I was reading this passage over again, I got a different perspective. First off, when I was reading this passage again, it really didn't make any practical sense. It was totally counterintuitive to what is normal. Why on earth would you risk losing 99 sheep to go for one lost sheep? Why would you overturn your house and throw a party just to find one coin when you still have nine more coins? It's counterintuitive. And that's when I realized that is precisely the message that Jesus was trying to make to the religious leaders and to the people around him. Jesus was saying, God does not value what society values. God values who that God values whom society devalues the most doesn't make any sense. Those people that society says, you're on the margin, you're on the outskirt, you're a person of color, you're in the LGBTQ community, you're a woman, you're disabled, you're old, you're uneducated, you're poor. Those people that society says you are less than, Jesus says, actually, you're the most important person. I will search high and low so that I could have a relationship with you. I will overturn everything in my house so that you know that you are loved and that you are my prized possession. That's the message of Jesus. Jesus is not for the 99, but Jesus is for the one that is lost. 
And so I think about those moments in my life when I felt like, in sixth grade, when I felt the most devalued, and I felt like I was less than everyone else in that moment. It was a terrible, terrible place for me to be in. And it was in that moment where Jesus was trying to speak to me and say, actually, you are the most valuable person. It just doesn't make sense. But that is the kind of God that God is. I think about uh, what happened, the shooting in Orlando last weekend. And it was, it was a shooting at a club, but it wasn't just a club. It was, it was a gay nightclub. And if you're in the gay community, it doesn't matter what people say, you are marginalized in society. You just are. But it wasn't just a gay nightclub. Most of the people there were people of color of the Latinx community. And so if you're a person of color, you're also marginalized in society. So if you're a person of color and you're in the LGBTQ community, you're doubly marginalized in the community. And I feel like it's a tough, tough, tough place to be in when you are facing discrimination on multiple fronts of your life. It's hard to value yourself. It's hard to have pride. It's hard to feel good about yourself when you're living in that, uh, when you're living on the fringe. And it's precisely in that place that Jesus says, actually, that's the place where I want to be. You are my community. You are my friends. You are my brothers and sisters. It's in the deepest and darkest and most painful places. That's where Jesus says, actually, I will light a candle and I will search high and low, far and wide, so that I can be with you and that you will know that you are valuable. That's what Jesus was trying to say to those people, to his original audience, to the religious leaders. And that's Jesus' powerful message that is so relevant to us 2,000 years later as well. Before uh, I go from this place, I wanted to impart to you two things, a gift and a commission. So. Uh, if you look under your, uh, taped underneath your chairs, you might find, uh, you'll find a penny. And if your chair doesn't have one, that means uh, someone from first service took it. So if you don't have one, uh, if you look at one of the empty chairs next to you, you might find one. And I know what you're thinking right now. Paul, you shouldn't have. It's a lot of money. Um, it cost me $2. The masking tape was more expensive. But the penny is the smallest, most insignificant denomination in US currency. People hate pennies, really. Right? Nobody likes pennies. When you get change back and there's a take a penny, leave a penny, I always just dump all my pennies into that little plastic tray, right? Uh, there have even been movements where people said, we should eliminate the penny from circulation, round everything up to a nickel, and so that we can just do it with pennies. Pennies are devalued, really. And this penny represents all the times that you in your life, in the past, in the present, and moving on into the future, where you will feel less than, 
because of what society says about you, what you think about yourself, or how you just don't seem to measure up to those around you. This penny represents that. And I want you to hold on to this penny. Take it with you. It's my gift to you. And hold on to it. And be reminded when you feel like you're in that shitty place, part of my language, remind yourself that actually this is precisely the place where God is coming to meet me. That I am in this dark and lonely and this terrible place right now, but I know and I trust because the words of Jesus are true that God is searching high and low to meet me where I am. That I am not devalued, that I am valuable. That I am not lost, but I am simply waiting to be found. That I am not at the bottom, but I'm actually at the top. That I am not marginalized, but I am cherished. It's such a difficult message for us to believe because it is so counterintuitive. And so take the penny, hold on to it as a reminder that God loves you so very much. But I also have a commission because it wouldn't be a sermon unless I told you to do something, right? There are many lost coins in this room, that annoying coworker, <laughs> that person in your family that you just don't want to talk to, that estranged brother or sister, that broken relationship, that person that you know that sits at the lunchroom and eats by themselves. You are commissioned by God to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And not to guilt you or anything, but perhaps the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart right now and saying, I want you to be my ambassador. Let that person know that they are loved and that God is loved, that they are not alone, that they're not devalued, but that they are cherished by God. See, here's the thing with evangelism. Evangelism is not about filling all the empty seats in this place. I could care less, right? And not just because I'm leaving. Evangelism asks the fundamental question, do you value who Jesus values? Do you take serious the message that we are called to reach out to those who are lost? Will you go to those deep and dark places? Will you go to the places where people are marginalized and oppressed? And will you tell them, no, you are valuable, you are loved? That's the heart of evangelism. And each and every one of us, we are empowered, we are charged, we are inspired by the spirit and the presence of God to do the work of Christ. Uh, as, we go from, uh, as we go from this place, as I go from this place, I want to say a big thank you to uh, all of you here. As I sort of uh, sweep around the room. Uh, you're not just faces in a crowd. I've done a one-on-one -on -one with more than half of you, most of you, really. Um, you've heard my story. I've heard your story. Uh, this isn't just a, a church where I've worked. This has been my community. I have been challenged by you. I have been inspired by you. Uh, I haven't been annoyed by you, but I have been pushed and this is a great, great 
church community. And the ministry that we are doing together is so important in the city of Chicago. And in such a big city, there are so many people who need this radical, inclusive, bold message of Jesus. And it's not just my job or Chris's job or Hannah's job to preach that good news. Uh, It is on all of you as well. So I just want to thank all of you for uh, being a part of this great experience for me. And um, yeah, if you're ever in Michigan, feel free to look me up. And hopefully, like in five years or something, Michigan will get on board and say, we need an urban village church in Detroit as well. And so when that day comes, you're going to get a letter from me asking for your prayers and a lot of money, too. Uh, You guys are laughing now. But But thank you so much. Uh, Would you join me in prayer? God, we thank you. uh, Thank you, because your invitation is what has brought all of us here to this place. In the most difficult places in our lives, you remind us that we are chosen, that we are special, that we are valuable. Despite all the negative messages that we hear or the negative messages that we impose on ourselves, You are shouting to us that we are not devalued, but we are valuable. That we are your children. Let that message soak deep within us and permeate our minds, our hearts, and our spirits. Give us the strength and the courage to seek out those who are lost, who are desperately in need of your message of love and inclusion. We want to be your hands and feet. I thank you for my brothers and sisters who are here, who have been a blessing for me. God, I ask that you would continue to bless them as well as they do powerful and important ministry here in the city of Chicago. Help them to know that you have called them to be the light here in this city. We give all uh, honor, glory, and thanks to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.